Welcome to our first night of our Depression Recovery, Depressed People of the Bible Seminar. And the principles we're going to be seeing over these next several weeks uh, have a combination to coming from the Depressed People of the Bible book and uh, work of Dr. Neil Nedley, who wrote a book, wrote several books, uh, Depression, The Way Out. Um, how many people have either, and I'll ask for your hands at the end of, I'm going to give you four choices, and any of those choices, so I'm not going to delineate which choice, but any of those choices, if they apply to you, either you are currently depressed or have been depressed in the past or know of someone who is currently depressed or know someone who has been depressed in the past. If any one of those four apply to you, if you raise your hand. That's basically almost 100%. Yeah, so it is wide, wide spread in society today. But there is a way out. There is depression, the way out. And Dr. Nedley is not a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Uh, he actually is a cardiologist by trade. Uh, but a lot of his patients were coming in depressed as well, and he had to know medications for both sides, make sure that he wasn't giving conflicting uh, medications that would conflict with other medications they were on. And, and, and one of the things he did in his work was, you know, not only, let's say, prescribe blood pressure, high blood pressure medicine, but to try and find, well, what is the cause of the high blood pressure? And if we can find out what the cause is and we can reverse what is causing it, then the blood pressure will go down on its own and then we'll be able to take them off the blood pressure medicine. And so he began to look at depression the same way. Not only what are the symptoms and, and, and then treat the symptoms, but what is the cause of the symptoms? And if we can treat that, then the symptoms will go away and then the depression will go away. And so uh, I'm going to have him uh, do a little presentation, video presentation each week describing, uh, he came up with a 10, 10 hits, he calls them, 10 different things, 10 different categories that cause depression. And if you go above four of those at any one time, chances are you'll be depressed. If you keep it below the four, then chances are you won't. And so we'll go into his description here now. Welcome to Let's Talk Mental Health, where we bring awareness to the causes and solutions of mental health conditions. I'm your host, Nathan Nedley, and I've got Dr. Neil Nedley with me. Can you speak a little bit about the research that you've accomplished dealing with your uh, community-run uh, program, the eight-week program? Yes. Uh, now, this is a program that is uh, now been run in, what, 24 countries now? Uh, four continents, uh, thousands of individuals, close to 10,000 individuals now have gone through. So it's a very large uh, database. And in fact, it's a much larger, larger database than uh, anyone who's taken drugs before the drugs are released. And so when you compare it, for instance, with pharmaceuticals or other studies on depression, this is a very large statistically validated database. And we have been able to determine the underlying causes of depression in these thousands of individuals uh, based on a depression and anxiety assessment test. And so there are over 100 causes of depression, 
but they can be categorized into 10 different categories. And when there's four categories operative, our studies show that that is going to tip the patient over into depression and anxiety or another mental illness condition. And so that tells us the brain's pretty resilient. It can withstand, you know, one or two causes, three causes, but once there's four different categories of causes, then that's when depression and anxiety comes about. And the solution, of course, is to reverse the causes that are reversible, and then we can actually eliminate mental illness, and we can talk about cure and not just control. It's a more simplified way of looking at depression, but it's still very thorough. What are those 10 categories? Okay, so genetics, um, developmental, which this has to do with maybe traumas in your upbringing, um, abuse, uh, sexual abuse, those sorts of things. Uh, addictions that you might have acquired uh, will actually decrease uh, mental health. Uh, circadian rhythm, um, that has to do with sleep-wake cycles. Lifestyle, that has to do with things like physical exercise and getting enough fresh air and sunlight. Um, nutrition uh, is a very important um, component in regards to mental health. Toxic causes, literal toxins like heavy metals, those sorts of things that can play a role in depression and anxiety. Social causes, medical causes, and then finally frontal lobe causes. These are things that are adversely affecting our circulation and activity of the most important part of the brain regarding mental health, and that's the frontal lobe. So what does your research show as far as the ability to reduce or improve these categories over the span of eight weeks in your program? You know, amazingly, in just one time a week, educating people for two hours, which is what our program is based on. It's a mental health education program with certified coach, uh, coaching people through this process. And so once a week for eight weeks, you would think, what's going to change in someone with depression and anxiety? But amazingly, a lot of people change once they are educated and coached to do so. And what surprised us at first when we uh, did our research was that the area that produced the largest change was nutrition. And these are major nutritional changes that people have taken. A lot of people think, hey, depressed and anxious people aren't going to change the way they eat. Well, if you educate them in regards to what's going to help their mental health, they sure will. And 47%, about half of the individuals that went through our program, actually made such major nutritional changes that they didn't even qualify as having a nutrition hit uh, wow. at the end of the program. And so that was our category that improved the most. The second most, I also wouldn't have predicted, and that was the frontal lobe. That improved the most. And of course, there's a lot of things that can produce frontal lobe hits. Uh, lifestyle factors and the way we're thinking and those sorts of things. But uh, we found out that well over a third of individuals actually totally eliminated their frontal lobe hit during those eight weeks. And so they had changed their brain inputs enough to totally eradicate the frontal lobe hit. And then the third and fourth categories where about one-fourth completely eliminated um, those hits are addiction hits. Who would have guessed that? Addictions are hard to give up. But our data shows that even though our program is a mental health program, you're actually more likely to give up your addiction 
during that eight weeks than actually going to an addiction recovery program uh, because we're dealing with the mental health issues behind it. So addiction was number three and really tied for number three was circadian rhythm. That has to do with sleep-wake cycles and getting light. And so a large percentage um, of our patients were able to get rid of those four hits. Uh, and then, of course, there were other hits that also made a difference. About 20% were able to get rid of their lifestyle hit. In other words, they were exercising uh, physically, getting enough fresh air, getting enough sunlight to completely eradicate that hit that they had um, during the uh, eight weeks. Uh, and then socially, uh, we found out a lot of people were able to change positively for the social aspect. That was the sixth largest category or the sixth category of being able to change. And then seventh, medical conditions. And so educating people about medical conditions that can adversely affect their mental health or can be reversed. Um, many people were able to eradicate their medical condition hit by controlling that aspect of things and thus improving their brain health. And then the three that were least likely um, to change were toxins because it takes a while, more than eight weeks often, to deal with the toxic part of things. And then, of course, genetic and developmental are already there. We can't change the gene and we can't change your upbringing once you're an adult. Uh, but we can, of course, counsel you on how you can counteract some of those genetic defects and developmental issues, uh, which the program also uh, educates towards. For some viewers who may be wondering, what exactly is a, is a medical hit? Yeah, medical hit are medical conditions that can adversely affect the brain, like high cholesterol, high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, you know, even head trauma can be a medical condition that causes inflammation in the brain, uh, inflammatory diseases like autoimmune disease, uh, and so, and also a hormonally based depression like postpartum depression or premenstrual tension syndrome. Uh, and so there's a whole number of conditions medically that can bring about uh, depression. Hepatitis C is another one. And uh, the amazing thing is the seventh category that was most likely to change, it's still not in the top six, was actually enough control over that medical condition that it was no longer adversely affecting their brain. Going back to what you said initially, if you're able to change or reduce uh, just a few hits, you can eliminate depression because of depression from the research that you've done only shows up most of the time in, in cases where a person has four hits or more. Is that correct? That's right. So in other words, even if the person ends up having genetic, developmental, or toxic hits, but we're able to reverse those others, uh, their depression and anxiety can be gone uh, because three hits is usually not enough um, to produce it. And so uh, the good news is we don't have to get rid of all the hits. Uh, we just need to get rid of enough to get you down under that four category. And of course, if we're able to get rid of them all, I mean, the brain can be greatly optimized and the sky's the limit as far as your future success. Well, thanks for breaking down the research that you've done on mental health and depression. And thank you for watching. This is Let's Talk Mental Health. I'm your host, Nathan Nedley. And as always, stay healthy, live happy. Okay, so we'll be each week he'll give a little presentation like that. Uh, it'll be 
going into a little bit more detail of each of the hits each week. Uh, I believe it's next week that he will talk a little bit about medication and, and its role uh, and its belief of the proper role for that. And, uh, and then we will be looking at those hits and comparing them with people in the Bible who went through depression and thus the, the book, uh, the uh, not yet bestseller, Depressed People of the Bible book and uh, looking at people in the Bible who've, and so we will look at their lives each week, a different person, and compare them with the list of hits and kind of figure out which hits might have put them over the top. And our purpose is not to psycho, 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 Alice, psycho, whatever, to, <laughs> to judge them and to, uh, you know, determine, but to look at them, to use them kind of as a, uh, an example and look at the possibilities that might have been there and then to use that as a mirror to look at our own personal lives, right? It's easier to look at someone else and then see ourselves instead of just looking directly at ourselves and then to allow that to help us to see ourselves. How is that like me and how, how did I fall into that area and how can I change? And so there are people in the Bible who experienced depression. Uh, some were even suicidal. Some fortunately came out of it. Some unfortunately did not. And we can learn lessons from their lives of what they did or what they should have done that can apply to our lives today. Okay, so here's that list. And we'll get more into that, that 10 list of the 10 hits. And we'll get a little more of that in, in a little bit. This week, we're going to be looking at Jonah. Jonah is a classic example of depression. And I think it's a good one to start with. And it'll be very helpful and insightful for us today. So going all the way back to Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, Go to Nineveh and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come before me. And you can see on that chart there where Nineveh is in relation to where Jonah lived in Israel. And so Nineveh is outside of Israel. It's in today's modern-day Iraq, so it's quite a distance from Israel, especially if you're going by foot or camel or whatever he would, would take there. He wouldn't actually take that route. He'd have to go north and then uh, east to get there, so even a little bit longer than, than the map showing. And Nineveh uh, was uh, part of the Assyrian kingdom. Jonah found a ship going to Tarshish, and he fled from the presence of the Lord. So he didn't want to go to Nineveh. He went, as again the map showing, in exactly the opposite direction. And, uh, and well, there might be several reasons why. Uh, the Assyrians were not nice to Israel at all, especially around this time period. They were coming and attacking Israel routinely. There are Bible stories about it and historical uh, documents about it. And they were very crucial, cruel, horrendously mean. Uh, and what they would do, and they would pillage and kill and slaughter and, and take captive and, and make sex slaves. And, and, and there's even a, a story in the Bible of a young girl, a young, becomes a little maid, becomes a, a servant, becomes a slave uh, in an army commander of Syria's uh, army. And, uh, and so there's no, probably Jonah knew people personally, maybe even in his family or certainly in his nation, who were deeply affected by the Assyrian attacks. Maybe you knew people who were killed, maybe you knew people who were taken captive and, and made into slaves. And so he didn't 
necessarily want to go to Nineveh. And again, God tells him to go, he'd go by himself, far away from home, without any protection. And again, how the Assyrians were, were cheating the Jewish people, uh, he very easily would be slaughtered. I'm sure you can think of places in this earth today that if you went preaching the Bible, you would be killed, right? According to their laws, Bible being outlawed, reading of the Bible being outlawed, uh, they would have no problem with uh, taking you, trying you very quickly without a trial and, and killing you, blasphemy laws or various different reasons for, for just killing you without a, a second thought. And, uh, and so he would be facing that. So under those circumstances, why would God tell Jonah to go to Nineveh? What was God's purpose? Why did he want Jonah to go to Nineveh? Because he loved the Ninevites, <laughs> exactly, that's right. Because he loved them, that's right. That's why he wanted Jonah to go and to preach to them. God loves everyone and he wanted to give them an opportunity to know. And Jonah did not want to go because he did not love the Ninevites. <laughs> and so he had fear and other reasons, right? So he did not want to go. And so he goes in the other direction. Verse 4, the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea and there was a mighty tempest and the ship was about to be broken up. The mariners were afraid and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo into the sea and lightened the load. Jonah had gone down to the lowest parts of the ship and was fast asleep. Now, why did God allow this windstorm? The Lord sent a great wind. Why did he send this storm against this boat? Why would he do that? Yeah, that's because Jonah disobeyed, but why would God send the great storm against the ship? Why would he want to get Jonah's attention? Because he loved Jonah, exactly. He loved Jonah, and he wanted Jonah to get Jonah's attention, right. Yeah, now, I mean, if he was just about the Ninevites, he could have said, well, Jonah doesn't want to go. I can find someone just as unlikely as him, you know, just as unwilling as him. But the story is not so much about the love of God for the Ninevites, although it is, but also about God's love for Jonah, that he doesn't give up on Jonah, because God knows that Jonah going to Nineveh is for Jonah's own good. And sometimes God allows storms to come in our lives to wake us up, to get our attention, calamities, problems, difficulties, because he loves us. He doesn't necessarily send them or bring them, but he allows them to wake us up. Not because he's angry at us, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. And then it says, and so this storm is going on, lightning, thunder, crashing, mariners on top running all over the deck, no doubt yelling and screaming and the howling of the wind and the boat ro ro uh, rocking all over the place. I mean, big boats now, you know, go through a storm like that and you can easily get seasick. And, and a little boat like what he was on could easily get crashed and destroyed. And the cargo, things are shifting all over the boat. They're grabbing cargo, dragging it running up and down the decks, pounding it up the stairs, throwing it overboard. No doubt a lot of noise, a lot of activity. And Jonah is sleeping. How on earth could he sleep through all of that? 
How could he sleep through that? He was depressed. <laughs> yes, he was depressed. He was deeply depressed and could sleep through anything. Have you ever been so depressed, so sad, that you didn't want to get up for anything, you just shut the blinds, didn't want to talk to anyone, go find a corner, go find a hole, go find the deepest part of the ship, go as far away, find some cave, and just sit there and lay there and shut out the world. That's the condition of Jonah at this point. That's why he's a classic example. We're only in verse 4 and he's already depressed. <laughs> Deeply depressed. Sleeping through a major, major storm. With people yelling, screaming, noise, cargo being dragged, ship breaking up, and he's asleep. And he's down there in the belly of the ship, down at the bottom of the ship. Kind of a cave experience. He's hiding there. And so we can relate to him. We can relate to this story. This true story. Verse 6, the captain came to Jonah and said, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And they said to him, What people are you of? What is your occupation? He said, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Is that true? Maybe? Yes? Amen? Amen? Well, yes and no. God made heaven and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Yes, that part is true. Yes, he was of the Israelite nation, a Jewish person that spoke Hebrew. That part is true. But fearing God at this point in his life? No, he's not. No, he's not. So we can go through all the motions, right? We could be worshiping God and singing and praying and reading the Bible and listening to sermons and going to services and still not truly worshiping God when we're in disobedience to his calling on our lives. And at this point in time, this sliver of history we have of Jonah's life, he is in disobedience to God's calling upon him. And they said, what shall we do that, we, that the sea may be calm? And he said, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and then the sea will become calm for you. Well, from this statement, we can see that Jonah does not have a clear picture of the God of heaven who created the earth and the sea and, and the dry land. We can see he does not have a clear picture of God's love, does not have a clear picture of God's mercy. All he sees is a God who judges. He is in disobedience. He is running away from the Lord's calling. And so the only solution is for him to be eliminated, and that will appease this angry God. That's how Jonah is picturing God. And again, that's not God at all. God didn't send the sea to punish Jonah. He sent the storm to punish Jonah. He sent the storm to draw Jonah closer to him, to get Jonah back on the right track, because he loved Jonah. He just wanted to sink him. He just wanted to kill him. He could have done that a lot easier than a, than a storm. But he's doing this to save Jonah. And again, he allows things in our lives, blessing, and sometimes difficulties, whatever it takes to get our attention. Because he loves us. So what hits does Jonah have? Let's take a look at the list 
All right, so you have the genetic hit of the family history of depression. We don't know that about Jonah. We come into the story at this point. He's adult, developmental, a rough childhood, early puberty. We don't know that about Jonah either, so we don't know either one of those two. Lifestyle, low exercise, low sunlight, low fresh air. Does he have that? In the bottom of the ship. Now, it's not one day in the bottom of a ship that will cause you to have depression or, you know, one day it doesn't classify as a hit. But we don't have the whole history. We don't know how long the ship was on the voyage. We don't know, have all that information. Uh, and again, we're not doing this to, to again, uh, psychoanalyze uh, Jonah, but uh, just to kind of get some ideas and principles. And so that certainly would apply. At least that day, and maybe you've been out there for days in the bottom of the ship with no exercise, no sunlight, and no fresh air. And another idea, uh, principle for us is it's easy for us to think, well, it's only been one night that I didn't sleep. It's only been one day that I didn't get out of the house and get fresh air. But really, if we were able to look at, uh, you know, if we kept track, it, maybe it's been several days. And they just kind of all blended together, you know, before we really look at when was the last time we got out and got some exercise, got some sunlight, and got some fresh air. Circadian rhythm either sleeping less than six hours or more than six hours, or not having regular times of sleeping or regular times of eating. Does that apply to Jonah? Yeah, he's probably sleeping more than nine hours if he's down the bottom of the boat sleeping. Uh, and uh, maybe irregular, you know, if he's running away and trying to get the first ship out, whatever time it goes, and, we don't, you know, and then his eating patterns would be off, and, and so easily off on those areas. Uh, Alcohol uh, addiction. Now, at that time, they're very fortunate. I don't think they had tobacco back then. I don't think they had, at least in you know, smokable cigarette form, I don't think they had caffeine uh, in drinkable form back then. I don't think they smoked pot back then, and they didn't have uh, commercial narcotics. So they were very fortunate. All they had was alcohol, and the alcohol they had was a much, much weaker uh, type than we have today. So they're very fortunate on that side, and we don't have any record of Jonah being an alcoholic. Nutrition, high cholesterol, high fat, high sugar content, or low uh, tryptophan, omega-3, low, uh, low omega-3, low vitamin B, or low folic acid. Now, in Jonah's day, again, they probably didn't have high sugar, right? They didn't have processed sugars. They didn't have white sugar sitting on the shelf and put into and shoved into every single food. Uh, including things that definitely don't need it, like applesauce, it's already sweet, you know, just pump it into everything. Um, probably not the high fat level, because uh, they were eating mostly fruits and vegetables that were in season, uh, fish, a lot of fish, and um, occasional red meat without, uh, without refrigeration. It wouldn't have been a regular part of the diet. And so probably not high cholesterol, probably not high uh, fat, uh, but could be, with cheeses and stuff like that, could be high fat and high cholesterol. And we don't know the other things, but that's a possibility. Toxic, high lead, high mercury, high arsenic, high bismuth, uh, etc. And again, we don't know that. Now, if you go through Nedley's, the program, the Nedley Depression and Recovery Program, uh, to, they have both, as he says, an eight-week program where you can have a counselor and do that two hours a week. Or you can go to their live-in program where you live there for a few weeks and go through it. And, and they will do a blood test and they will be able to determine whether or not you have high 
levels of uh, these metals. And in today's society, uh, the fish and a lot of different things have high levels of these metals in them. But we don't know that for Jonah. Social or grief, under stress, no support system, and great loss. You think that could apply to Jonah? Yeah, with the Assyrians coming in and attacking, he very well could be grieving the loss of maybe a loved one or others, or just a national loss or national grief. Uh, he's certainly under a lot of stress, this whole thing of going and preaching before a city that would kill him in a heartbeat. And no support system. Now he's removed himself. He's on the ship with these mariners, and down the bottom of the ship he doesn't have any support system. And so that certainly would apply. Medical, hepatitis C, stroke, heart disease, cancer, Parkinson's, lupus, diabetes. We don't know uh, those things. Frontal lobe, low carbohydrates, high protein such as meat and cheese. Now, there's a lot of diets now, diet fads now, and a lot of these diet fads, what do they recommend? Low carb, high protein. And that's the very thing that will give a frontal lobe hit. These keto diets and the beach diets are all based on the same thing. Low carb, high protein, and maybe you'll lose a few pounds <laughs> quickly for a few weeks, but it will cause a depression hit in the frontal lobe. Not a good trade-off. Not worth it at all. Not healthy for the rest of the body as well. And then high TV. I don't think Jonah was doing that. <laughs> high internet, but those are huge today. People can't get away from the internet. They got their phone, it's a third arm carrying with them everywhere they go, looking at it all the time. High sex. And if we're participating in sex in a biblical fashion within marriage, it's high to have high sex. Eventually someone will get a headache and want to have sex that night. But with pornography and prostitution and masturbation, self-abuse, it's very easy to have high levels of sex that would cause a frontal lobe hit. And again, with internet now and various different ways that people can participate in pornography, uh, it's very easy to have that as a bad hit. Um, syncopated music, which is basically in all music today, most musics today, uh, except like, let's say, orchestra. Low abstract thinking. Sitting in front of a TV set for hours and hours, or on the computer, or on the phone, or on a tablet, looking at a screen, is low abstract thinking. Really no abstract thinking. And that is a big problem today. And then acting against one's conscience. Do you want to have a frontal lobe hit? Is he acting against his conscience? Does he know what he should be doing? Is he not doing it? Yes, he has a frontal lobe hit, at least in that area, as far as the going against his conscience. So these are the ones that uh, seem to have a hit on him. So five out of the ten very easily could be uh, frontal lobe hits for, or, or, or depression hits for Jonah. And again, all he has to do, he doesn't have to get rid of all five. He just has to bring it down below four. So what happens to Jonah? 
Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to the land, but they couldn't, for the sea continued to grow more temptuous. And they cried out to the Lord, We pray, Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life. Do not charge us with innocent blood, for you, Lord, have done as it pleases you. So even these mariners don't want to throw them overboard. Even they don't think that's a good idea. Even they think there's got to be more merciful a God than that. And then here they get to the point where they... It's getting worse and worse and worse, and they're going to all they lose their lives. And they think, well, let's pray to God to be merciful to us and do what we, this guy tells us to do. And so they pick Jonah up and they throw him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. The men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. So it had a big impact on these mariners. And what about Jonah? The Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. Now, hopefully it wasn't that fish. <laughs> and I don't think it was that fish. And I don't think it was that fish either. But it might have been more something like that. That God prepared and swallowed Jonah. Why did God prepare a great fish to swallow Jonah? Because he loved Jonah, yes, out of love, God provided. Again, if it was just getting rid of Jonah, if it was just appeasing an angry God, he wouldn't have sent a storm, he wouldn't have sent a fish, right? But out of love, God continues to try and reach Jonah. And so out of love towards Jonah, God prepared a great fish and sent him to be at the right place at the right time in the midst of the storm. The fish and the boat are right next to each other, and Jonah gets thrown overboard, and the great fish swallows Jonah. And now he's back again in a dark place, probably even darker than the bottom of a ship. I don't know if you can get any darker than inside the belly of a whale for, or a great fish for three days underwater. Who knows how deep that fish is going down at times? He is down in the deep. And what happens? Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Does that sound like someone who's depressed? No. And if the prayer is much longer than that, we're going to not read the whole entire, every verse of the story tonight. You can read that in your Bible yourself. And, but uh, no, he's out of depression now. What made the difference? Eating sushi inside the great fish? I mean, what was it that made the difference? Which hit was eliminated? The frontal lobe hit. He made a right decision. He chose not to run away from the Lord anymore. He surrendered to the Lord, willing to do the Lord's bidding. And that was all the difference it took for Jonah. And he's out of the depression. And that might be all it might be for you or the, your loved one right now. 
making a frontal lobe decision. And as Dr. Nedley said, 50% of the patients in eight weeks, they're able to make a frontal lobe change and knock it off the list. Choice, making a right choice, changing our thinking. Because how we think is how we are. Goes a long way. Making our choices, choosing to believe what God says about us, not what others say about us. Choosing to obey the Lord, to yielding to him, accepting him, inviting him into our lives, makes a world of difference. And then the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. God's love and God's mercy spits him out. I'm sure he had quite a fish story to tell. <laughs> you should see the fish that I caught, or maybe that it caught me. <laughs> And then the Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Why did God tell Jonah now to go? Why is he telling him a second time to go? You have it yet? Why is he telling him to go? Because he loves who? Both Nineveh and Jonah, exactly. He loves them. And he knows this is good for Jonah. And he doesn't need Jonah, he can send someone else. He could send an angel if he wanted to. But it's as much for Jonah as it is for the Ninevites. And God's calling upon you is as much for you as it is for uh, the ones that God is calling us to go to. God has called us to share his love with others. It is a blessing. We might be fearful. God calls God will go before us as we trust in him. So Jonah yields. Again, he surrendered. In front of the Lord, he's no more depressed. He's in harmony with the Lord. That hit's been gone. And, and now he's getting plenty of exercise and plenty of sunlight and plenty of fresh air, walking all the way to Nineveh or however he got there. Or maybe he got a good meal along the way. Hopefully he took a shower. Right? And so now he's on his way to Nineveh. And the people of Nineveh, chapter 3, verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them. A full, complete confession and repentance takes place. I mean, a mighty, mighty revival. Here, this wicked, wicked country, this wicked, wicked capital, with mean, again, horrible, horrible deeds that they did, horrendous deeds that they did. And they repented of it, put on sackcloth, fasting, confessing, and changing, turning from their evil ways. Doing good works. A real change took place deep in their hearts and minds. Powerful, powerful. Whole city. From the king, everybody. And Jonah was so excited. Jonah was so happy. Wow, this was wonderful. I'm so, I wish I would have come earlier. I don't know why I put it off. This is fabulous. Can't wait to go dome and tell everybody. No. 
it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. He's exceedingly displeased and exceedingly angry. How could that be? <laughs> he was successful. They changed. They're not going to come and attack Israel tomorrow. Why is he so angry? Why is he displeased? Because he does not love the Ninevites. <laughs> he didn't want the mercy of the Lord to come upon them. And he says that. He prayed, Lord, wasn't this what I said? Therefore I fled to Tarshish, for I know that you are gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. So he knew in his head. He learned it. Maybe as a young child in sermon, listening to sermons and services. He knew about a merciful God. He knew about a loving God who forgave Moses, who forgave Jacob. He knew about this loving God. But he didn't know him in his heart. He only knew of a God of judgment in his heart, in his experience. And he was fearful that God is going to forgive these people. And Jonah doesn't want them forgiven. And thus he didn't want God to do this. And thus he is angry now at God. For God not doing Jonah's plan. Jonah just wanted judgment upon the Ninevites. And then he prays, verse, chapter 4, verse 3, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than live. What state of mind is Jonah in now? He's depressed again. All right, so he was depressed, he came out of depression, now he's back in depression. That's why it's a classic example, very helpful for us. He's depressed, and how depressed is he? Suicidal. I wish I was dead. Better for me to be dead. He's suicidal. These suicidal thoughts, suicidal tendency. And even when he said, throw me overboard, I was kind of suicidal then too. And I did not want to do it by his own hand, but he wants someone else to kill him. Now he's praying for God to kill him. Wishes he was dead. So he went from angry to depressed and suicidal. And that is not an uncommon pattern. Another reason why it's a classic example. And he's doing it because he's bitter. He's bitter at the Ninevites, and he's angry at God. And bitterness can produce two different things. It can produce sadness or intense anger. We see he was sad when he's in the bottom of the ship. Poor me, woe is me, God called me to do this. We can have pity on a person sitting there in a corner crying. The person who's raging and yelling and screaming and ranting and raving, it's harder to have pity upon them. But really, it's two sides of the same coin. Bitterness that brought on either sadness or anger. And usually it depends who we're facing. 
That's why someone at work will get berated by the boss, and he fears the boss, or she fears the boss, because that boss has power over them to fire them, to demote them, to you know, cause difficulty upon them, and so they'll just not say anything. They'll go back to their little cubicle or whatever, their little workstation, and, and just eat it and stuff it all day long, be sad, hide out, get depressed over it. But then when they go home and come in contact with someone they feel they have power over, they'll kick the cat or yell at the spouse or yell at the children and take out the anger on them. So it all depends on who we're facing. But it's the same thing. This sadness or this anger based on bitterness. And Jonah experiences both in this story. So it goes from exceedingly angry to now wishing he was dead and groveling or when he was in the bottom of the boat. And the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? Do you really have a right to be angry? I've been good to you your whole life. I've sustained you to this day. I felt you were important and valuable and gave you an assignment. I love you. I sent a fish to save you when you were wanting to die. Here, I gave you success in your labors. Do you have a right to be angry? And the same applies to us. Do any of us really have a right to be angry at God? At God's choosing is God's direction. How does Jonah respond? Jonah said, it is right for me to be angry even to death. Again, he's suicidal. Depressed, suicidal, and so angry, he wishes he was dead. I'm right, and I should be dead. I'm right, God, you're wrong. I'm good, the Ninevites are bad, and I should be dead. I don't want to live here anymore. I can't stand an earth that operates this way. And he's struggling with it. There are a number of things that take place here. Again, we won't cover the whole story. Jonah goes out on a hill to watch God do the fireworks and destroy the city, still hoping that God's going to do it. God raises up a plant to give him some shade while he's sitting there. He's happy about that. Then the plant dies, and now he's angry at that. And then God says, chapter 4, verse 11, the Lord said, Should I not pity, pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 people who cannot discern between their right hand and their left? Don't I have a right to pity them? Don't I have a right to forgive them? Don't I have a right to have mercy upon them? They're ignorant. They don't have the privileges that you have. You know, they didn't have the Bible that you have. Don't I have a right to pity them? And Jonah responded, he doesn't respond. We don't have, this is the last verse in the book. This is where the book ends, which is pretty interesting, kind of unusual for the Bible. And maybe there's a reason for it. Because the book of Jonah, although a true story, is not primarily about God's love for Nineveh, nor primarily about God's love for Jonah, 
although both of those things are very much a part of the account, the book of Jonah is most about God's love for you. And the book is not totally written yet about you. And thus it ends here because we have a choice. Are we going to remain in our condition of resistance against God? Or are we going to surrender to him? Are we going to allow bitterness to rule over our lives? And angry feelings? Or are we willing to surrender to God's love? The real basis here for Jonah comes down to forgiveness. Jonah did not have a clear concept of a God who forgives. That's why he said, throw me overboard. That's why I said, I knew you were going to do this to Nineveh. He doesn't understand forgiveness. And today, I believe we have a big problem with the concept of forgiveness. We've been taught and fed some very erroneous things about biblical forgiveness and true forgiveness. I've heard people say, well, I, I'll never forgive that person. I could never forgive them. After what they did, and thus we don't have a concept of what forgiveness is really about. Because the forgiveness is not for the other person. Forgiveness is for me. If I hold on to bitterness, I'm not hurting the other person. The other person doesn't even know I'm alive often. They've gone about their daily life. They've gone on with their lives. And I'm still sitting there bitter. And it's destroying me. It's not affecting them at all. It's a true biblical forgiveness is about being at peace, choosing not to be angry. Now, a big problem with the way forgiveness is presented today is that it's just mercy. We just forgive and they just go on. And they, there's no accountability. And we even have in society uh, terms like debt forgiven, banking terms that the, 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 the debt is written off and the person doesn't have to pay the debt anymore. Well, that's not biblical forgiveness at all. No, the debt still has to be paid. Forgiveness, biblical forgiveness does not relieve the debt. Wrong still is wrong. And forgiveness actually points out that it is wrong. You don't forgive someone who's good. Right? If I gave you a gift, you wouldn't say, I forgive you. You'd say, thank you. And if I called you up and I said, I, I wanted you to know I forgive you. What would just the first thought be? Why? What did I do wrong? Why are you forgiving me? I, I didn't do anything wrong to you. Right? We only forgive those who do wrong. And so by forgiving, we are stating flat out, you did something wrong. It's not good. It was bad. It shouldn't have been done. And it should never be done again. And I'm going to do everything in my power to keep you from doing it to me again or to anyone else. I'm going to hold you accountable. 
But at the same time, I'm going to choose not to be angry. I'm going to choose not to be bitter. I'm going to choose not to do it in a vengeful way, but in a justice way. And I'm not going to cut your head off because you plucked out my eye. It'll be an equal justice, a fair justice. That's biblical forgiveness. Accountability. We have a term in society, forgive and forget. That's the stupidest thing I ever heard. If you forget about what they did, they're going to do it again. And you're going to let them do it again. That is not biblical. Forgiving doesn't forget. It holds them accountable. And so we can forgive and still take them to court if necessary. We can forgive and still expect them to pay the debt. We can forgive and still expect them to make recompense. We can forgive and still expect them to pay a jail sentence if necessary. But not harboring anger or bitterness. That's true biblical forgiveness. That's the balance of still justice and yet mercy. Some people will say, well, I will forgive them when they apologize. Well, we're expecting them to do something good after they did something bad. Why would they do something good if they've done something bad? What makes you think that out of the blue they're going to come and do something right and good whenever they just did something horrible to you? And if we're waiting for them to apologize before we experience peace and joy and happiness, if we wait for them to apologize before we are released of bitterness and anger and rage or sadness and depression, then who's really in control? They are. They've hurt us already once or maybe more than once. And by choosing not to forgive them, we are allowing them to continue to hurt us the rest of our lives. The memory of that pain will stay there forever. And what if they die before we do? And never have an opportunity to apologize. And there we are holding on to this and we will be stuck with bitterness the rest of our lives. How does God forgive? While we were yet sinners, the Messiah died for us. He didn't wait for us to apologize before he forgave us. He is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Even before Adam and Eve were created, even before Adam and Eve sinned, he pre-forgave. God pre-forgives. God didn't pre-forgive. He had plenty to be angry about to destroy this planet long, many times over. But he has chosen to forgive. But again, another way that even among Bible circles, Bible preaching circles, wrong, erroneous way that forgiveness is presented, well, just confess the sin and God forgives. God is love. He just forgives. You can continue doing wrong. It doesn't matter. He forgives. Just keep confessing. He forgives. That's not biblical forgiveness. No, he demands a price to be paid. Even as he forgives us, even though he pre-forgives us, he demands a price be paid. That's why the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. That's why Adam and Eve had to sacrifice an animal. 
That's why the Messiah died for us. A price had to be paid. His justice, his law, still is maintained. Now, does that let us off the hook? No. No, but that's how it's often taught. And then people say, well, if that's forgiveness, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to let them off the hook after what they did to me. And so then we're bitter and angry and then we're depressed. Or we then try and forgive and let them off the hook and then that's depressing in and of itself. So we either run away from this crazy God who tells us to let them off the hook or we stuff it and let them get away with literal murder. And neither of those are biblical. God still kicked Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. Even after they came to terms with their wrong, they still were held accountable. He said the punishment would be death, and they did eventually physically die. But more importantly, they died to self in offering the sacrifice. And we also have to die to self. Repent and be immersed and receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. So while God has pre-forgiven everyone, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, he's already forgiven everyone on his part, but we don't benefit from that forgiveness until we receive it. And we receive it by confession and repentance, like the Ninevites did. Full, not just confession, but turned by God's power, turned from their evil ways, and did what was right. And then we receive the forgiveness that God has already given to us. So God gives the forgiveness. The receiving of it, the benefit of it, is experienced when we confess it and die to self. Where the old nature dies. Where the old habits die. Where the old desires die. And are killed with the Messiah. And a new life through the Holy Spirit comes into us. And lives out of us. And changes us from within. And we experience God's forgiveness. And the same on our part. We pre-offer forgiveness to all who hurt us. But we still hold them accountable, expecting them to make it right. And even if it's not possible here on this earth because they ran away, got away, a horrible justice system that lets them get away, God will hold them accountable. They will not get away forever. Judgment will come, thus we don't have to hold on to the anger and the bitterness and the wrath and the rage and the vengeance, because vengeance is the Lord. We do have a just judge who has a good, a good justice system who will enact true judgment. Thus we can let go of it. We can let go of the anger, we can let go of the bitterness, we can let go of the rage, we can let go of the desire to make them pay. We could try, again here on this earth, through proper means to get them to pay. But ultimately, leaving it with God for his timing, and God will bring it in his timing, in his way. No one gets off the hook. They would have to still confess and still repent to be good with God. And even then, if they truly repent, then they will make it right with you as much as possible. But we hold on to the anger and the bitterness. It'll just eat us away. Now, forgiving in this way... Someone asked me, even last night, is that a, sounds like a hard thing to do. Well, it's not really hard. It's really impossible 
without God. But with God, all things are possible. So we try and forgive in our own strength, and we don't have the capability of doing that, because that's a good thing, and we don't have the ability to do good in our own strength. So you can't force yourself to forgive someone who hurt you. But since God is a forgiving God, who's already pre-forgiven you, and he who is forgiven much will love much, when we receive God's forgiveness of us and his love for us, and we confess our sinful tendencies and desires and carnal nature and surrender that to him and allow that to be buried in the tomb, like Yeshua said, unless a seed is placed in the ground and dies, it will not grow, but we allow the old nature to die, let God create a new life in us, born anew, and he'll fill us with his mind, let this mind be in you that was in Yeshua the Messiah, and he will give us the ability to forgive. He'll give us his mind, a forgiving mind, and he'll give us the ability to forgive. Again, biblical forgiveness, true forgiveness. That is a balance of mercy and yet still justice. To hold them accountable, but to not hold on to bitterness and anger and wrath. And that's how God is. And that's the God, character of God that God will give to us. That we don't become doormats. Again, that's how it's painted. Oh, would it be a godly person you just become a doormat and let the world walk all over you? No, that's not biblical. That's not biblical forgiveness. You don't let the world walk all over us. That wouldn't be right to that person. It wouldn't be right to ourselves. And it wouldn't be right to others. God didn't ask Jonah to move in with the Ninevites. He just told them to go there and preach to them. But too often people have a wrong concept of this, again, false forgiveness that's taught, and they will stay in an abusive relationship, they'll stay in abusive employment, they'll stay with abusive friends, they'll stay in abusive marriages, thinking they're being merciful, thinking they're being godly, thinking they're being forgiving. And really all they're being is codependent. That's not biblical. Well, Yeshua allowed himself to, be de to die, to be killed. He will come back as judge. He doesn't allow it to continue forever. And neither should we. There is a just judgment and a good justice. And so if you're in an abusive situation, God doesn't call everybody to go to Nineveh. God didn't call all of Israel to go to Nineveh. He only called Jonah to go to Nineveh. You might not be the one called to go and minister to that person who abused you. You might have to tell them you forgave them through a letter or something like that. And in saying you forgive them, again, that's a rebuke in itself. Again, it's saying that they did wrong. And often telling them they did wrong, telling them you forgive them, is what can lead them to apologize. God doesn't call all of us, again, to remain the one to minister to the abuser. So we're being abused. And Jonah went there, but I don't think he moved in there. Wasn't called to move in there. Just called to preach and then leave. And we'll get more into that. Other Bible people will show us biblical examples and more examples of forgiveness through the Bible as well. This is a very big one, a very crucial one. And again, we see for Jonah, that was the big issue that sent him into depression so much that he wanted to commit suicide twice. And when he made that right choice to surrender, came out of the depression. And then when he got angry again, that's the one that caused him to go over the hit list 
and go back into depression. And it could be that simple in your mind and heart. It is huge. Because we're all getting abused. We're all going to get hurt. All who live godly in Yeshua the Messiah will suffer persecution. We're all going to get hurt by someone, somewhere, somehow. It happens. It happens. We live on this sinful planet. And so knowing how to deal with it. Some of us are holding on to pain from our childhood, from years and years and years ago. Talking about someone, they, they got a new counselor, and what was the new counselor doing? Well, I, I, I retold my story of my childhood, 50 years ago, whatever. Why are you still holding on to that? Why is that still an issue today? Yes, it was a horrible event back then. Why are you still holding on to it? Because of this, not understanding this concept of true biblical forgiveness that releases us. Doesn't release the other person. Releases us of the bitterness, the anger, the sadness, the depression, the rage. And yet can still hold the other person accountable. That is biblical forgiveness. It frees us. It's tremendously free. It's tremendously liberating. And it's sad that in society, forgive and forget, debt forgiven is taught. And again, in Bible teaching circles, it just lets them off the hook. Let them continue. No more law. No more accountability. You're just free. You're just forgiven. Believers are not perfect. They're just forgiven. Just go on. Continue to live your horrible life. God forgives you. No. God calls, calls for his power to come into us and change us. And we should demand the same of others as well, to have true biblical forgiveness when they've hurt us. And so, are you running away from God's calling? God calling you to minister to some Nineveh. You don't have to go all the way to Nineveh. You don't have to go all the way to... North Korea, you don't have to go all the way to Iran. <laughs> Maybe God's calling you just to talk to your neighbor across the street. And I'm sure they won't be nearly as mean as the Ninevites would have been to Jonah without the Spirit of God moving upon their hearts. Maybe someone at work, maybe someone in your family. Are you running away from God's calling? And if so, you can surrender that. And just the moment when we pray, just give that over to God. Surrender to him and let him empower you and let him move before you and go before you. Or maybe some other calling and God's convicting you of. Maybe he's calling you to, to give or to do or to serve or some other area of God's word convicting you that you're running away from. That you're in disobedience, Tom. Surrender that. Have this frontal lobe hit removed. As God used a storm to draw you to him, Maybe in the past, maybe as you look back and you see how some horrible event brought you to this day where you're hearing God's word, and the moment when we can pray, we can thank God. Maybe you never thanked him before. Maybe you never looked at it in that way before. Maybe you still thought about it as a calamity. You still don't know why he allowed it. But hey, if you're alive and you're here today, then God used it in some way, shape, or form. God will work all things together for good, even the horrible things. He doesn't bring on the horrible things, but he allows them, and he will bring good out of the horrible things in some way, shape, or form. We may not see the results here on this earth, but in eternity we will. And so if you want to thank him for it, maybe you're going through some storm in your life right now. 
You want to say, God, why are you trying to get my attention? What's going on? Do you find it hard to believe that God loves you? Maybe you understand it in your mind. Maybe you believe God loves the world. Maybe you believe God loves everyone. Maybe God loves others. But you have a hard time applying that to yourself. That God loves you. God doesn't want you thrown overboard. God loves you. God's chasing after you. God's calling you. God has a special love personally for you. In spite of the problems that he's allowed happen to you, God loves you. Have you been angry when God was merciful? Have you seen God merciful to someone else? Maybe they got the promotion, maybe they got the job, maybe they got that person to marry or some way that uh, they did some wrong to you and the judge let them off the hook or please uh, let them away or get, get away or they did good, they, they, they stole, they manipulated, they lied and they got the position. They did good, they're prospering, they're making money, they're getting away with it. Have you been angry when God has allowed their leash to go a little longer, their rope to hang themselves on to get their attention has been stretched out a little longer and God allowed them to experience some benefit for some more time because God doesn't want any to perish. Have you been angry about that? Like Jonah, angry at God, extending Nineveh's mercy. That's the case, surrender that to the Lord. Allow him to change your heart and give you his mind. Have you been reluctant to forgive? Maybe because you think, well, if I forgive, then they're getting away with it, and I don't want them to get away with it. Maybe because I can't forget it. You know you shouldn't forget it. Maybe because you've been taught a wrong impression of forgiveness, that there's no justice, there's no judgment, there's no accountability. Maybe because you haven't asked for God to give you a spirit to forgive. Maybe because you've been trying to do it in your own strength. But if you're willing to forgive, if there's someone who's wronged you and you haven't yet chosen by God's power to forgive them yet, in a moment when we pray, you can ask God to give you the ability to forgive and forgive, again, biblically. Still hold them accountable. Maybe it was a long time ago and you can write them a letter and say, I, I've chosen to forgive you and you still owe me <laughs> such and such. <laughs> or you need to, right? Or you should. And let them know what would be just and right. And some things will never be able to be repaid in this earth. And what are you thankful for? When Jonah was in the belly of the whale, that helped turn that. I, I praise you, God. You are my salvation. He chose to thank God. It's good to have a list of what you're thankful for. What are you thankful for? What has God done for you? What blessing has God done for you? What salvation has he done for you physically or spiritually or eternally? What way has God blessed you? How has he helped you? It's good to give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And are you in an abusive situation? And if so, in the moment when we pray, you can ask God to show you a proper way to get out of that situation, how to stop the abusiveness, 
And so if that applies to you, then we pray. If any of these areas apply to you, let God do his work. Let us pray together. I'll leave the list up. Our Lord and our God, ruler of the universe, we praise you and we thank you, Lord. You are a merciful God. Thank you for your balance and forgiveness and love. Thank you that you are also a God of judgment. Thank you that you will hold sinners accountable. Thank you, Lord, for holding us accountable. Thank you for coming to us. Thank you for first loving us. Thank you for drawing us with your everlasting love. Thank you for chasing down Adam and Eve. Thank you for chasing us down. And thank you for dying for us, and thank you for bringing us into the tomb with you. Thank you for killing our carnal nature. We want to let go of it, surrender it to you, take it away from us. Thank you for giving us new minds, new hearts, new spirits. Live in us, live through us. Let your joy be fulfilled in us. Remove all bitterness, all anger, all rage, all sadness, all grief. We want to give it over to you. And trust you that you'll work that horrible situation out together for good. Give us your peace. Give us contentment. Give us mercy. Give us love. Give us pity upon those who hurt us. Give us your joy in spite of the problems. Live in us and out of us. Fill us with the ability to forgive. Give us the strength and the power to stand up to the abusers and hold them accountable. Give us wisdom to know rightly how to, whether to call a lawyer or, or law enforcement or what to do, or what superior and company or what actions we should do. For an abusive situation, give us wisdom to know how to stand up to it and how to remove ourselves safely from it. And again, while giving us a spirit of true biblical forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Give us the ability to love others. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.